So we are in Luke. I've got the outline behind me. And what we have finished with is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That was in our chiasm, Luke 10, starting in verse 25, and then Luke 18, starting in verse 18. So we went through all of that. And so what I'm going to do next is prayer. Swap slides out here. What we have behind me there is prayer. And that's going to be broken up between Luke 11 and Luke 18 again. We have a chiasm within a chiasm. The way this is broken out, the first is going to be the Lord's Prayer. And what we're talking about is what is the proper content of prayer. What should a prayer consist of? Then the opposite end of the chiasm is the Pharisee and the tax collector. And there you have what the proper attitude in prayer should be. So our outer braces of the chiasm are content and attitude in prayer. And then in between, we have the assurance of prayer. And in Luke 11, it's going to be the friend at midnight and the father's gifts. And in Luke 18, it's going to be the unjust judge. These are obviously paired up by subject, and so we'll take them according to subject. So let's start with the Lord's Prayer, and there are two versions of that, and not only are there two versions of that, but there are a number of different variations on the two versions of that. I am going to be in New King James, because New King James has both all of the versions and all the variations, some of the modern texts don't have everything. And obviously there's controversy about whether everything should be there. Otherwise the modern texts would have it all and they'd all agree, but they don't. So let's start in Luke 11. Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So the first thing that you should understand is prayer is a skill, and it is a skill that can be taught. I'm not speaking against charismatic prayer, but there are a lot of people that just sort of feel like if you aren't flowing in the spirit and it isn't coming from deep within inside of you or something like that, it's not valid. And as I say, I'm not speaking against charismatic prayer. Charismatic prayer is perfectly fine, but it is not the only kind of prayer that's valid. And so what Yeshua is saying here is there's a pattern to prayer. I'm going to teach it to you. So in Luke, in New King James, which is a variant of King James, of course, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So that's Luke, New King James. There are several variations in the newer translation. So our Father in heaven... English standard does not have the in heaven. 
and it does not have your will be done, which is in verse 2 in New King James. So now let's go over to the Matthew version of the same thing. So I'm in Matthew 6, pick it up in verse 8. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you need before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The Luke version doesn't have the doxology at the end. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That doxology is not in the Luke version. The comment was in verse 14 in New King James, Yeshua then gives some instruction about the prayer. The prayer actually ends in verse 13, and then he's turning around and saying, the reason for that is if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. That's by way of explanation at the end of the prayer. It's not part of the prayer itself. His comment was, his Catholic Bible does not have that. And if you read this in English Standard, it is not there. So it's a difference in the Greek manuscripts. From what I understand, reading commentaries, the earliest manuscripts don't have it. And later manuscripts do have it. So it isn't clear when or who inserted it. But if I were reading this in English Standard, it would very much follow what your Catholic Bible has. Y'all know about different Greek manuscripts of the New Testament? There are two major textual sources that are slightly different. The Alexandrian text coming from Alexandria, Egypt, is probably the older text, and it has some differences to what's called the Textus Receptus, which is the text that was received, if you will. And the Textus Receptus is what King James and its derivatives come from. Many modern Bible scholars have what they call a majority text where they've gone through and looked at all of these and said, all right, this is original, this seems to have been added. So English Standard, for example, does that, and the way they handle stuff like that is they'll have a note saying that other versions include this. One of the things that I think I've said several times before, but maybe not in this venue, is differences in the text bother people who think like Greeks. In other words, if you say the Bible is inerrant, they will go back and say, wait a minute, it says this here, and it says that there, same conversation, two different versions. How do you get around that? The answer to that is if you were a lawyer and you were trying a case and you had three different witnesses that came up and said exactly the same thing in exactly the same words, you would instantly suspect that the witnesses had been coached and they had sat together and gotten their stories straight. And everybody says the same thing in the same way and they all agree completely. What actually happens in a trial is the witnesses are not allowed to be in the courtroom while another witness is testifying. 
So witness A testifies, witness B and C are not even allowed to be in the courtroom and they are not allowed to hear the testimony of witness A. So then witness B comes in and gives his testimony and it will be different. And what the jury's job is, is to listen to the three witnesses and say, are they describing the same event? The manuscripts of the gospels are all slightly different. And what that indicates is that they were written independently. And they were not, everybody got into the same auditorium and sat down and said, all right, let's write this down once and for all and we'll all write the same thing. You had each of the four gospel writers writing it from memory and writing it slightly differently. Now, you add to that, not only you have the difference between Matthew and Luke, who are two different men, you also have these accounts were then handed off to people who copied them. And they copied them over and over and over again because they were sending them out to different churches. So when somebody copied it, say for example, somebody made an error in his grammar said it wrong, it got written down wrong. It's very natural for someone like my dear wife, who is copying something like that, automatically, without thinking, to write it in correct Greek. Nothing sinister about it, it's just, you're writing along and this is how it should be, and that isn't how it was in the original, but this is correct Greek, and we just wrote it that way. Not even thinking about it. So the fact that there are variations in manuscripts is not a problem. In fact, it's not a bug, it's a feature. Because what that tells you is these things were never under the control of a single central authority who put it all together and said, this is it. These were independent witnesses to those events who wrote them down as they remembered them. So what we have here is two different versions of the same prayer heard by two different men, Matthew and Luke. And actually, Luke may not have heard it directly. Luke may have had somebody tell it to him because he wasn't one of the apostles. Then you have people who have copied it over the years and stuff drifts in and drifts out. That's why the scholars go through and say, all right, now was this part of the original or did some copyist inadvertently or advertently stick this in? So that's what we're dealing with here. And as I say, I'm reading them in New King James because New King James has got all the stuff. Okay, in other words, New King James has the doxology, has our Father in Heaven, has got all of the possible variations. According to my chiasm up there, what Yeshua is teaching here is the content of prayer, things that you should talk about. So the first one, of course, is our Father, parentheses, in Heaven. Some of your versions won't have in heaven. One of the things that I do, and this is just a quirk of my own, not suggesting that anybody else has to do it, is when I pray in the morning, 
I say, you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, I want to make sure that the spiritual world knows who I am talking to. I do not use generic titles. I do not use any of that kind of stuff. I say, you are Jehovah. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To make absolutely positive that no random spirit may think I'm talking to him. Because I'm not. I'm talking specifically to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when Yeshua says, our Father in heaven, what he's talking about here is, this is who we're talking to. Because I, I am firmly convinced that there's lots of spirits out there, and if you pray imprecisely, you may wind up getting something that you're not looking for. So the first thing is, who are we talking to? Second thing is, hallowed be your name. Which is to say, your name is special, it is not common. H is not Yeshua's middle initial. Jesus H. Christ. Yeah, I mean, it's a very common expression. And what that does is it makes the name common. The name should be holy. And by the way, that is in line with Jewish thinking, and of course he's talking to Jews, he is a Jew, and Jews to this day do not say the name Jehovah. They say Hashem, which is the name. So they refer to it in the third person, and the explicit reason for that is, is they don't want it to become a common thing that you just sort of throw around and people use it as a curse word which is what has happened to the name Jesus. And so what Yeshua is saying here is, first off, our Father in heaven, that's who I'm talking to, and then second, your name is sacred. I do not want it to become something common. So the next one, of course, is your kingdom come. What that is, of course, is we want your kingdom to be established on earth. And your will be done. Now, this is very Jewish. One of the places where Christianity, I believe, has become sidetracked. They have focused on heaven, and all of their energies are focused on getting to heaven. So what they do is they neglect repairing the earth. That's called pietism. And it started in about the 17th century. What happened was, before then, the people who put together Western civilization regarded God's word as being the framework for setting up government. So, for example, our founding fathers set up our government based on the Torah. Very clear, very obvious. Similarly, kings and so forth all drew their authority from God, in fact, the British kings claim ancestry back to David. So the idea that the scriptures were a prescription for earthly governments was widespread in all of the Western civilization. About 1700s, I said 17th century, 1700s is correct. 
about the 1700s, this idea of pietism came in, where people started focusing on getting to heaven and neglected fighting and shaping the culture. Now, governments loved it because it got churchmen out of their hair. When rulers went off the rails, the Christians being focused on everybody getting to heaven and salvation and all that kind of stuff and sort of saying, well, this earthly stuff is not something we're going to mess with. What that wound up doing is chasing the church out of governance. And what you have is what we have now, where the church is totally ineffective on shaping the culture or shaping the government. It's given lip service and that's it. So what Jewish idea is, is no, your function is not getting to heaven. Your function is bringing heaven down to earth. And what you want to do is take God's laws and you want to organize your society according to God's laws and hence bring his will down to earth. And you want to do things on earth the way he would have you do them. That's what that means. And as I say, it's very Jewish. The Jewish uh, phrase for that is tikkun olam, which is repair of the creation. We broke it. It's our job to fix it. And so this your kingdom come, your will be done is an expression of bringing heaven down to earth, not getting everybody up into heaven. You bring heaven down to earth, getting everybody up into heaven will take care of itself. So we're all the way down to verse 3. Give us this day our daily bread. You are our sustenance, and we ask that you continue to sustain us. That acknowledges that God is the source of the material stuff that you have. Because one of the things that we tend to do, and it's all over the Torah, it's all over the prophets, is when Israel gets blessed and gets abundance, what they tend to do is they tend to think that that abundance was something that they did, and they tend to get arrogant, selfish, forget God, and go herring after idols and all sorts of other stuff. So this idea of give us day by day or give us this day our daily bread is an acknowledgement that all of the stuff that we get is from you. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, or forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is controversial. One of the things that happens with this prayer and this series on prayer behind me is some people turn it into an eschatological exercise. In other words, we're talking about the end times, we're talking about tribulation, we're talking about all of that kind of stuff. I don't happen to have that view. The other thing that you have is this wobbling back and forth between debts and sins. Now, in the Torah, one of the things that happens is every seven years you have a forgiveness of debts. The idea here being, all right, Every seven years, we forgive those who are in debt to us, so we also ask you to forgive us who are in debt to you. That's one interpretation. 
And I understand that interpretation and I don't have a serious opinion on it one way or the other. The problem is, I don't know that God regards what he has done for us as a loan. A debt is a loan, something that is given to someone expecting to have it paid back. Certainly you can say in sort of a slang way, we are indebted to God as a way of saying that everything we have is from God. But that's not technically what a debt is. Technically what a debt is, is an obligation that has to be paid back. The other translation is, forgive us our trespasses or forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us or have sinned against us. Let me read New King James. It's basically the same thing. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Obviously the same textual tradition. They both come from the same place. So there are a number of different concepts wrapped up here, and it isn't clear to me which one's correct. If we go to Matthew and go down to 6.14, that's what we led off with, which is after the prayer. In other words, this is Yeshua's explanation of what he just said. Matthew 6.14, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So we have trespasses, we have debts, all sorts of variations on that. But what Yeshua is saying in Matthew 6.14, and he says it more explicitly in other places, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. There's an article that I have preached on several times that says the word forgiveness in the Bible gets so much stuff packed into it that you can't do it, practically speaking. And what he does is he breaks down a release of offense, which is what forgiveness is, a release of offense. And he breaks it into three concepts. One is a restoration to innocence. Forgiveness so complete that the relationship is restored to a state of innocence as if the offense had never happened. And the example that he gives there is apparent to a child. If a child does something that is egregious, it needs to be forgiven. You can forgive your child and the relationship can be restored to a pristine state. And he gives the criteria for that. Then the second one is forbearance, which is to say, all right, I am not going to hold this against you anymore. The debt is erased, but I'm also not completely trusting you. I am going to keep an eye on you because you have a tendency to do these things. I'm not going to hold this against you, but I'm also not going to completely trust you in the future either. That would be forbearance. Somebody in the office, for example, who stole your lunch. All right, I forgive you, but I'm also going to bring my lunch in a cooler and keep it by my desk. You understand the difference? And then the third one is release. And then the example there is somebody has 
wronged you and has died. So you can't do the interpersonal stuff, but you still have to get rid of it so that it doesn't eat at you. And that's what he calls release, where he says, I'm not going to hold this anymore. I'm not going to carry it around with me. I release whoever it is and will have no more holding against them. So that's all wrapped up in this biblical term, forgiveness, because the Bible doesn't talk about it that way. The Bible simply says, forgive. And what this article does is give you practical ways to march through that process and get to the point where you're not chewed up with bitterness and you can live your life without painful associations and so forth. But that's what he's talking about. The guy that wrote this, by the way, is a Jew and he's a psychiatrist. So his focus is getting it out of your soul. So the one who damaged you is not living rent-free in your head for the rest of your life. So how do you get to the point where you can move on without the baggage? And that's the way he described it. Ideally, what you would like to do is get the relationship restored to a state of innocence. That's what you really want. For various reasons, that may not be possible. The person may, no matter what, keep stealing your lunch. And seven times, 70 times, you've got to forgive him for stealing your, all right, baloney breath, I forgive you again. In fact, with forbearance, which is the middle one, over time and with good behavior, that may elevate to restoration of innocence. If you continue to have a relationship with that person and he never steals your lunch again or anybody else's lunch, you may over time elevate that to a state of innocence. Comment was you cannot change someone else, but you can influence them. And very often going to someone and confronting them and saying, you stole my lunch, I can smell it on your breath. You may get genuine contrition. And if you do, then the process elevates higher. But if you get just sort of sorry, then, okay, I'm forgiving you, but I'm watching you. The comment was, when Esau and Jacob meet, the question, is that forbearance or is that forgiveness? I would say that's forbearance. First off, Esau, when he's coming up there with 400 guys, is clearly not coming up for a meet and greet. He intends to do his brother harm. And it's only the spirit and all of the gifts and Jacob's abasement of himself that mollifies his brother. The second thing is Esau wants to take him back himself, escort him back. And Jacob says, oh, there's no need for you to do that. If we go too fast, you know, the women and the children and the young will die. We have to go very slowly with all these flocks and herds. And you've got your 400 guys and they can go really fast. So I don't want to hold you up. Well, how about if I leave some guys? Oh, no, we don't need. So very much forbearance. When Joseph forgives his brothers, that is true forgiveness. And that is the first instance of forgiveness in Scripture. 
moving right along. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There's two versions of this. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or as in this, from the evil one. Different manuscripts have different versions of that. Now, the idea of leading us not into temptation is controversial because James says that God never tempts anybody. So, one way around that is people interpret it as do not let us fall into temptation. Protect us from temptation as opposed to not leading us into temptation. That's one way they get around that textual problem. As I said, I am reasonably confident that this is an accurate translation of what the Greek says. But as I say, it runs afoul of James, who says God doesn't tempt anybody. And then in the Matthew version in New King Jimmy, we close with the doxology, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The idea there, of course, is circling back to our Father in heaven and your kingdom come. So what he's saying is, yours is the kingdom, you are the king, and the power and the glory forever and ever. The comment was that as you were reading, give us this day our daily bread, that also hearkens memories of the time in the wilderness when they got their manna every day. All of this is very Jewish, very Hebrew. So all of those allusions would certainly have been in the minds of those hearing it. If you read Sachs, modern commentators in Irish, they all say the difference between Christianity and Judaism, one of them, is Christians are focused on getting to heaven, salvation. Jews are focused on repairing the creation, bringing heaven down to earth. That's what Yeshua is saying here. You want heaven to come down to earth. Whatever happens in the final disposition of everybody will take care of itself. Your job right now is to repair the creation and bring the kingdom of heaven down. Not sit on your blessed assurance and wait to be sucked into the overhead while the earth around you goes to hell. Mm -hmm.